Well, I would encourage you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of 2 Thessalonians. For those of you that are guests with us this morning, we have been in a verse-by-verse study through this early New Testament epistle called 2 Thessalonians, and by its title, you can tell it's the second letter Paul the Apostle wrote to this fledgling church in the city of Thessalonica, which was in northern Greece. This is the 10th message in this series through this letter. And as we turn to chapter 3, we're turning to the final third of Paul's instruction to this fledgling congregation, a church that he deeply loved. The history book of the early church is the book of Acts, the fifth book in our New Testament. And the book of Acts records in the first portion of the book mostly about what happens through the apostle Peter and those other apostles around him, but primarily Peter, and how God used him in the formation of the early church, the organization, and the instruction of the early believers and leadership there. And then as you move into chapter uh, 13, the emphasis and the focus of the book of Acts turns from Peter to then focus on Paul. And it's there in Acts chapter 13 that Paul and Barnabas are set aside. They are commissioned for missionary service. They are sent out to take this good news of the gospel to all the known world. And so they leave Antioch. And, and what you discover as you go through the, the book of Acts is that Paul and his gospel are opposed. It is vilified by those who were hostile towards him and towards his gospel. In Cyprus, the first city they went to in chapter 13, he was first opposed there by a magician. And this magician actually took Paul before the governor of the region and wanted him to be uh, removed from the city. And this was simply a portent of what was to come in Paul's missionary journey. The next city he goes to is the city of Antioch. There in Antioch, civic leaders come against Paul and a riot forms. They drive him out of the city there. Next, he goes to the city of Iconium. As he's in Iconium, again, he's opposed. They actually try to get him to stone him to death, but he narrowly escapes. He escapes to then go to the city of Lystra where he doesn't escape stoning. He is stoned, pelted with boulders until he's left for dead. And there are some scholars who think he actually did die and was miraculously resurrected from the dead there in Lystra. In fact, some surmise that it was there in Lystra after he was stoned to death, left for dead, that he had his heavenly vision that he writes about later. He moves there from from Lystra after coming back from that stoning to go into Philippi, where his partner Silas and him are opposed. They are rejected, they are arrested, they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown into prison. From there, he travels finally in chapter 17 to this city of Thessalonica. And if you've been with us, you know his message was received greatly by a few there in Thessalonica, but the majority of the city hated the message, hated Paul, and they ran him out on a rail. So he travels down to Berea, a very peaceful-sounding town, and things did go there well there for a season until the rabble-rousers from Thessalonica came down to Berea, and they uh, instigated another mob riot against Paul, and so he travels through Athens and finally lands in Corinth. And it's here from the city of Corinth that he's writing this letter, First and Second Thessalonians, to these believers in Thessalonica. Now, in light of these ceaseless trials and hardships and beatings and opposition, the last thing we would expect from Paul 
is joyful confidence about his missionary service. But yet that is exactly what he expresses. He expresses this confidence. I have the occasion from time to time to meet with other pastors for the purpose of encouragement and for the purpose of care for one another in prayer. And a lot of times what those meetings devolve into is rant sessions about difficult people in each of our respective churches. <laughs> now, certainly, pastors need somebody they can vent to, but this is not what we see from Paul. Here is a man who expressed this confidence in the mission. How? After such opposition, town after town, city after city, how could he express such joyful confidence? Well, we'll see that today. His confidence is divine confidence. And that's actually the title of my message, Divine Confidence that Comes Ultimately from the Lord. And let's read our focal passage, the first five verses of chapter three. This is God's word. Hear it. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, not just here, but all through Paul's letters, he gives this expression of confidence in the Lord, confidence in his work that he's doing, not only through his ministry, but in the lives of those he's ministering to, those that he's worked with. Even when he's writing to this church uh, here in Thessalonica, he's writing from the city of Corinth. Now, we know that the city of Corinth, and particularly the church in Corinth, had more issues in them than you could shake a stick at. They were a difficult group of folks, but yet here from Corinth, he's writing with this divine confidence. Now, did you notice that Paul began this chapter 3, this paragraph here, with the word finally? That gives us a clue. He's summing things up. He's concluding his letter. And in my own mind's eye, I I imagine with my sanctified imagination that before he wrote chapter 3, which he would dictate to a secretary, to a scribe, he may have said, hey, would you read back what I've written already? And so he's listening back to what he's already written to the Thessalonians, and that brings to his mind some thoughts about what he could include in this summation, in this conclusion. Truths that would bring encouragement to them, ways he could exhort them continually in the faith. Now, when he says, finally, it's kind of like when a pastor or preacher says, in conclusion, you know they're not really done yet. They still got some time to go. And he says, finally, he's still got a whole chapter to write. And so in this first paragraph of Paul's conclusion, there are really three things that he's communicating about divine confidence I want us to consider together today. The first one is this. Number one, he makes an appeal for prayer. Paul, the commissioned apostle of Jesus, makes an appeal to these baby Christians in Thessalonica that they would pray for him. He begins the conclusion, finally, brothers, Pray for us. Pray for us. Now, the tense of the verb here, pray, is one that where he, he's indicating he knows they're already praying, 
and he's desirous that they would continue praying. He's not saying, I know you guys aren't been, haven't been praying for me, so would you please pray for me? No, he's saying, I know you're praying for me. Continue to pray for me. In fact, here's some ways you can pray for me. Now, I want you to think about for a moment. If there was ever a servant of the Lord in all of church history that could accomplish positive things for God apart from prayer, it would be Paul. Here's a man with a towering intellect. He was brilliant, as they'd say in Boston. He's wicked smart. He's a smart guy. Not only was he wicked smart, he was also incredibly educated. He had access to the greatest scholars and academics of his era. Not only was he academic, not only was he smart, he also had a force of will that he was going to do what God had called him to do. Beyond that, he had received personal revelation from Jesus himself. He had been gifted with supernatural ability to heal. All this capacity, all this giftedness, all this ability, unequaled capacities among servants of the Lord. But yet over and over again, we find in Paul's epistles, he writes to the churches, and eight times at least, he says, pray for me. Pray for me. This shows us how important prayer is in the ongoing work of Christ's church. This shows us how important prayer is for the advance of the gospel in the world in which we live. Now, he makes two specific prayer requests. The first one is this, for gospel development. That there would be gospel development. Again, verse 1, notice, Finally, brothers, pray for us, for what? Number one, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. That's very interesting language there, speed ahead. We often don't think of the word working in that way, of it being uh, rapid or quick or speedy, but that's exactly what he prays for. And as I study this, I, I came to realize, somebody else pointed this out in my study, that, that he's likely leaning on the Psalms here. In fact, Psalm 147, uh, we can see this same concept. Verse 15, the Bible says this, He, God, sends out his command to the earth, his word runs swiftly. And Paul's saying to the church in Thessalonica, pray that the word would go out speedily, that we, it would go out swiftly. And think of Psalm 19. This is a very familiar psalm. You've all heard it. Uh, the heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day and night they pour forth speech. But look at verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 19. The psalmist says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so I can just imagine Paul is praying that there would be a speediness to his word, a, a rapidness to his speech, that it would go out through all the earth, that this gospel message would spread to the ends of the earth. If you've ever wondered, how can I pray for missionaries? This would be a good place to start. Pray that in their ministry, in their proclamation of the word, in the context where God has placed them, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead, that would go out, it would be effectiveness, effective. Pray that. And Paul is asking for this prayer specifically for him and for his team because he knows, listen, gospel progress, gospel de development, gospel success is not based on the giftedness of the messenger. It's not based upon even the faithfulness of the minister. It is based ultimately on the Word of God. And how timely a word this is for us in 2021 
in our slice of church history that is modern evangelicalism. Today, the mindset is, among Christians, particularly in the West, that if you want to be effective in ministry, well, you need a preacher who is a dynamic speaker, who is a visionary leader, or perhaps a thoughtful theologian. That if you get those ingredients in your pastor, well, then you're going to have success. And even beyond that, in a church, if you have a very gifted staff, if you have dynamic ministries, if you have profound preaching, if you have these great musical uh, selections that are presented every week that are just powerful, well, those are the ingredients you need for success. Friends, that's not true. We are in the business of seeing dead people come to life. We are in the business of seeing those who are dead in their trespasses and sins being made alive by the power of God. Friends, that doesn't happen through human means. We must appeal to the power of God if we would be used by Him in power. Now, to be sure, God uses humans and God uses people. Friends, I spent hours and hours on this sermon preparing. God uses our plans. God uses our preparation. God uses our our thinking through the means and methods of the context where he's placed us here in Chattanooga. How do we reach this city? How do we reach this community? How do we reach the world? But at the end of the day, it is God and God alone who gives gospel development in the hearts of people. What is the consequence? He's praying for this speeding of the word to happen, that the word would be honored, he says. Honored. That word there in Greek is doxazo, from which we get our English word doxology. We've sung the doxology here. A doxologist simply means a worship, a praise, an affectionate um, exalting of God. And he says, what I would love to see happened, what I want you to pray to happen, is that the word of God would speed ahead and would be doxana, would be glorified, would be honored, would be praised. And we know we live in a culture where the word of God is not honored. We live in a world where the word of God is dishonored. Or if you simply speak the word in simplicity and clarity, you run the risk of being labeled a bigot or intolerant. The world is hostile to the truth. And this reality even more should be all the more to tell us we need God's supernatural involvement, that the word would find fertile soil and that it would be honored among people. And Paul asks this church to pray for this gospel development to happen, he says, as it happened among you. He says, I want you to think back to a few months ago when I was with you and I was preaching the gospel there in the synagogue for three straight weeks before I was run out of town, how you heard that gospel and God did a supernatural work of conversion in your own heart. Think about that. And would you pray that for others? I wonder, Christian, I wonder, church member, do you pray that way? How vitally important your prayers are for this church, for gospel effectiveness. Before you came to worship with your family today, did you pray for this service? Did you pray for the word to be clear and effective? Did you pray for me? I regularly receive messages and texts from some of you that say, I'm praying for you today, and you don't know how encouraging that is to my own heart. It's incredibly encouraging. Did you ask the Lord today to 
if there's someone here, or maybe somebody who's watching our live stream right now that doesn't know Christ, did you pray for their conversion? As I was praying in my office earlier, as I knelt to the Lord, I just said, God, save somebody today. Save them. Break down those defenses. May we be the kind of people who regularly, spontaneously, passionately appeal to God to do this gospel development in the lives of people. The second specific request he asked this church to pray is number two, would you pray for personal deliverance? Personal deliverance. Notice the second request in verse two. Finally, brothers, pray for us, verse two, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. I mentioned a moment ago, Paul is writing this from the city of Corinth, and we know from the book of Acts chapter 18 and also from the book of First and Second Corinthians that there were people in Corinth who violently opposed Paul and reviled him. He may have specific people in mind as he said, hey, would you pray for me? I'm not going to give you their names, but there are some people I want you to pray that I'd be delivered from them. This word wicked in the ESV is translated in the New American Standard Bible as troublesome. The King James Version translates it as unreasonable. It's the Greek word atapos. Ah, like atheist, means no. Tapos, topography, is a place. No place. Literally, what it means is out of place. These people are out of place. They're out of sorts. They're unreasonable. They are wicked. They are troublesome. Out of place. Out of sorts. Would you pray for them? These are men who have an antagonism against the gospel. Again, you may be one of those people that I prayed for this morning. You're here or you're watching and you have not come to accept the claims of Jesus as made in the Bible. You may be somewhere on that continuum of just indifference to Christianity to maybe the other extreme of outright hostility towards the claims of Christ. I want you to pay attention to how the Bible defines your state of unbelief as wicked and evil, as troublesome and out of place, as unreasonable. Do you realize it makes no reasonable sense to reject the gospel? Do you recognize it makes no reasonable sense to revile the message of God's grace? What could be more wrong-headed than to temporarily pursue the fleeting pleasures of this life and forfeit the eternal glories of God's kingdom forever. What could be more unreasonable? It makes absolutely no sense. And Paul says what's worse is it's evil. You see, because underneath those clever arguments that you may think poke holes in the Christian faith, it comes down to a moral issue. It's not just unreasonable, it's evil. It's ultimately a moral rebellion against the rule of God in your life. Paul is saying, would you pray? Would you pray for these? How much more reasonable is it to believe in Jesus who gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that you could be forgiven and experience eternity with him? But Paul tells us why this unbelief prevails in the hearts of men and women 
at the end of that verse, too. He says, for not all have faith. Now, I think this is speaking of a couple of things here. One, we know that faith is a gift from God sovereignly. But I think it's simply communicating the fact that that there will always be opposition to the gospel because not everybody believes. There will always be opposition to our word because not all have faith. Think of this, Christian, at your workplace where your testimony is clear, where people know that you're a Christian and you experience the looks or the talks or the, the opposition as simple as it may be, recognize not all have faith. Not all have faith. And this is the tragedy of the human condition. Jesus, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, he identified this tragic condition that not all have faith. In John chapter 3, he said this, and this is the judgment. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And because this is true, because not all have faith, because there is this opposition to the gospel because there are wicked and evil men who seek to undo what the mission of Christ is. Paul says, pray for us. In fact, look at this next slide. Opposition to the gospel should urge us not to despair, but to prayer. When you experience the look or the, the word or the comment from your professor should move us not to despair, but to prayer. In fact, Charles Spurgeon put it like this, the eminently quotable Baptist preacher, if we cannot prevail with men for God, we will at least endeavor to prevail with God for men. Pray is what he's saying. That's the first way Paul expresses this divine confidence. He knows the only way for gospel success in his ministry, in spite of the opposition, is that faithful believers would pray, would seek the Lord on his behalf. So there's an appeal for prayer. Secondly, Paul displays divine confidence in showing he has an assurance through precedence. Paul's saying, I want you to know something. There's a precedence, there's a track record of God's faithfulness that we can be assured of. There's a long-term precedence over and over again that gives us this solid assurance. Again, the end of verse 2 said, not all have faith. But verse 3 says, but the Lord is faithful. He intends and means here a stark contrast. Not all have faith, and that is troublesome, but the Lord is faithful. Isn't that good news? The Lord is faithful. What matters, what really matters is God's faithfulness. And this informs Paul's confidence because God has proven himself faithful again and again and again. He's faithful to transform people through the simplicity of the preaching of the gospel. He's directing our focus away from our troubles, directing our focus away from our difficulties and putting it on the unchanging character of God. The faithfulness of God is a theme throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament alike. I'll show you just a few. Deuteronomy chapter 7, in the Pentateuch, the Bible says this, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In the New Testament, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. Here's just a few other examples. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that God is faithful to complete the work that he started in you. Isn't that good news? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, that God is faithful to provide for you a way of escape for every temptation you face. He's faithful. 1 Peter 4, Peter writes, God is faithful to vindicate believers who suffer for Jesus. And here's a great one, 1 John 1, 9. God is faithful to cleanse us and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. What a faithful God we have. In fact, God's faithfulness is so magnificent that even the weeping prophet Jeremiah, as he's writing his lament, his weep, his lamentations, there in the middle as he's weeping over the destruction and the fallen Jerusalem and the devastating things that have happened to his nation, in the midst of that hardship and difficulty, he expresses his faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. Look at uh, Lamentations 3, 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And of course, this prayer by Jeremiah gave rise to one of the most well-loved hymns. Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And it is from this fountain of faithfulness, from the assurance of the precedence that God has demonstrated in the past, that, that Paul has this divine confidence in the continued work of God, even among these Thessalonians. And he sp- expresses this in a couple of ways. First, he's assured that they will be spiritually guarded. He's assured that they will be spiritually guarded. Verse 3, but the Lord is faithful. It's the foundation. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. These believers would be guarded, would be developed, would be grown in such a way that they would be protected specifically against the attacks of the evil one. We know from the previous chapter, as Paul was describing the work of the Antichrist that will happen in these last days, that the Antichrist and that rebellion, that great apostasy, was from the, quote, activity of Satan. Paul communicated, he taught, he believed that evil in our world is not simply an impersonal force. Evil is not just bad karma. Karma doesn't exist. Evil is rooted in a person. His name is Satan, the devil, the father of lies, the evil one. And he says, I know God is faithful. He's going to establish you. He's going to protect you and guard you against the work of the evil one. I wonder, Christian, do you ever factor this reality in? Maybe you came into this room today with some marriage problems. Nobody around you knows it, but you and your spouse know it. Have you thought about the fact that maybe a satanic attack you considered that? Maybe you're having trouble at work. Have you considered the very real possibility 
that there are demonic forces at work here? At work? (laughs) And of course, if there are divisions in the church, if there are relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ that are askew and strained, I have no doubt in my mind that the evil forces of Satan and his demons have arrayed themselves against us. But Paul says, the Lord is faithful. He'll establish and guard you against the evil one. Amen. Now, I'm not talking about blame shifting here. Many of you are old enough to remember the old comedian Flip Wilson. And one of his lines that always got a big laugh was, the devil made me do it. That's not what we're talking about here. But what we're talking about, the fact is that it's stressed over and over and over and over again that the evil one is a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. He's looking for fresh meat. He's crouching at the door waiting to pounce. He's like the thief who only comes to steal and to kill and destroy We must realize that our struggle is not just with our fleshly patterns, as dominant as they can be and bent certain ways as they can be. Our struggle is not just against the worldly system that we live in that seeks to sway us and move us. Our struggle is against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And Paul's divine confidence is expressed in the fact that he knows God will spiritually guard these believers. He's confident of that. And not only of their fact they'd be spiritually guarded but secondly of supernatural growth we see that in verse four because of the faithfulness of god god is faithful he says in verse four and we have confidence in the lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command do you remember the marching orders that jesus gave his disciples in matthew chapter 28 known as the great commission he told them to go told them to make disciples. He told them to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he also told them to teach them to observe, to obey all that I've commanded you. You see, our work as a gospel church is not just to preach the gospel and ask people to raise their hands. Our work as a gospel church is not just to proclaim the good news of Jesus and give an invitation and have people fill out a card. Gospel work involves teaching others to obey the commands of Christ. And Paul says of this fledgling church in Thessalonica, you are doing, and I know, I have confidence, you will do the things that we command. But notice specifically where his confidence is in. It's not in them. (laughs) You guys are so gifted, you're so smart, you're so congenial, you're so kind, I know you're going to do these things that I've commanded. He says, and we have confidence in the Lord about you. Don't miss that. Anything God does in this church, friends, it is not us. Our confidence is in the Lord about you. Now, I hope you feel like, after me being here for almost 15 years, you feel like you can place some confidence in me. And I certainly know I can place confidence in you. But our confidence is not in each other confidence in the Lord about us. (laughs) My confidence is in the Lord about you, what he's doing, how he's molding and shaping and empowering us to grow in obedience. Have you ever had this experience like I have had where 
I look back and think about the things that I struggled with five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and I think, how were those a struggle? <laughs> I can't believe I gave into that so often. As you look back and you think that, they're not a struggle like they used to be. Now, why, why is that? What does that do to us? Is it because I'm so wonderful? No. Those of you who know me well, I'm not that wonderful. It's because of the Lord's work in us, shaping us. We're not struggling with those things because God's word has been washing over us as we gather weekly in worship, as we meet with our family in personal Bible reading, as we go to a small group and engage with the scriptures, as the scripture washes over and over us, the Lord is at work in you. Paul says, I see these evidences in you. I see the evidence of the Lord at work in you. And he speaks with this divine confidence about the continuing work because God is faithful. But that leads to the third and final area of divine confidence Paul expresses in this paragraph. Number three, he gives them and he gives to us an affirmation of provision. An affirmation of God's great provision for us. Paul began this paragraph by asking the Thessalonians, would you pray for us? Pray for us. And he concludes this paragraph in verse 5 by praying for them. Verse 5 is a prayer. His prayer is, may the Lord direct your hearts. Well, what is our heart? Our heart is the seat of our emotions. Our heart is the arena of where God works in our lives. And he's praying that God would direct your hearts to remember. Direct your hearts to recall to mind God's supernatural provision for you in two specific ways. First, he wants them to remember God's affection. May the Lord direct the arena of his spiritual work in you, your heart, your, the seat of your emotion. Would he direct your hearts to the love of God? That we would contemplate, that we would experience, that we would understand, and dare I say it, that we would feel the love of God. Feel it experientially. There have been some believers that I have spoken with who struggle with believing God loves them. You may be here today and you struggle with that. I can't see how God could love me. You may trust in the work of Jesus on the cross. You may believe cover to cover the Bible. But there's a struggle. How could God love me? And Paul says, I want to remind you of these things. I want to pray for you that the Lord would direct your hearts to the love of God for you. Christian, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. God loves you. He loves you. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, I'm praying to the Lord himself to direct the seat of your emotions so that you can personally and experientially understand and contemplate the deep, deep love of God for you. It is so vitally important to have a grip on this fact that God loves you and his grip of love will never let go. For all we face in the Christian life, may the Lord direct you into an understanding of the Father's love. But secondly, may you recall Christ's endurance. He says, may the Lord direct your heart, secondly, to the steadfastness of Christ. This, is a, this word translated steadfastness in our ESV translation 
The Greek word literally means to remain under, hupomeno. It's often translated in our Bibles as endurance. That's the way I put it on our outline, as patience, it's bearing up under. And Paul is writing to these beleaguered believers in Thessalonica who are experiencing grave hostility and affliction for their faith in Jesus. And he's saying, I pray that the Lord would direct your hearts to remember and to recall the endurance of Christ, the steadfastness of Christ. When it comes to endurance in the Christian life, which we all need, we can maintain our endurance by thinking about contemplating Christ's endurance. God is saying this to us. My son has already endured everything for you. He's already endured deprivation, poverty, starvation, pain, sorrow, rejection, mocking, torture, a gruesome death. Direct your heart's to the endurance, the steadfastness of Christ. The next time, you may not even verbalize it, but you just think, I don't think I can get through this. Direct your heart to the endurance of Jesus. Most of you are probably familiar that Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the roll call of faith. And there the author of Hebrews lists several heroes of the faith that have gone through the annals of redemptive history. He starts, interestingly, with Abel, Adam and Eve's son. Then he moves to Enoch, then Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, and Joseph. And he lists there the great triumphs and victories that these heroes of the faith have had throughout redemptive history. This is the roll call of faith. Because of their faith, they've accomplished such great things. And then Hebrews chapter 11 concludes, after listing all these identifiable names, the chapter concludes by listing some nameless heroes of the faith. And they're not marked by their faith because of their triumphs but because, or because of their victories or the great mountains they've accomplished in the faith. They're marked by faith because of their endurance. Look how the chapter concludes, Hebrews 11, beginning of verse 35. These nameless heroes, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. In this paragraph of nameless heroes of the faith at the end of chapter 11 may very well have been including some of these beleaguered believers in Thessalonica who were suffering, who were afflicted, who were being tortured. And could it be they endured and are part of the nameless roll call of faith because Paul prayed for them that their hearts would be directed to the steadfastness, the endurance, the hupomeno of Christ. My mom died 11 years ago last week. She grew up in, in Turner County, Georgia, 
which is just north of Tifton, if you've ever driven down that way. She was born in the middle of the Great Depression to a sharecropper. Deep, deep poverty in post-Depression rural South. She was one of eight children who lived. Her mother, seen in that picture, my grandmother, died in childbirth when my mom was five. Once or twice a year, mom would take me and my three older siblings to South Georgia from Central Florida where we lived, back to her home place to visit family, to remember. And every visit included the obligatory trip to the cemetery. (laughs) I always found it curious as we went to this cemetery, and this is it right here, As we came upon that cemetery as a child, I found it curious that all these other graves had these nice marble and granite monuments, but all of my family only had small brass placards provided by the funeral home and no monuments to mark their graves. Another testament to the impoverished state of her family. Later, mom and her living siblings actually paid to have granite monuments put at every family member's grave. Mom would first point out my grandmother's grave, Dolly Mae Harvey. Again, she died when my mom was only five years old in childbirth in 1942. And mom would recollect what she could remember as a five-year-old little girl about her mom. She would talk about her, her mother's auburn thick hair that she would run her fingers through and play with as a girl. And we saw the other grave beside that one, which was baby Dolly Harvey, the child who was birthed when my grandmother died. And you see the child only lived seven months, and she died. There was another grave there of another baby, just called baby boy Harvey, who was stillborn. Then there was my grandfather's grave. He died seven years before I was born, so I never met him. And mom would talk about him, how he was not an educated man, could barely read, but he was a hard worker, was faithful to his family, his motherless family. He fought in Europe during World War I, sacrificed greatly. And we got to this next grave. <laughs> My Uncle Norris, who I never met. But he was the one my mom grieved the most because he was the closest in age to her and closest in relationship. They were the best of friends. And like my mom and the rest of her siblings, when they got old enough where they could physically do some type of work, they were required by the family, by my grandfather, to quit school and start working. And so my Uncle Norris, at the age of 14, quit school and went to work for a pilot who had a crop duster. If you don't know what that is, a crop duster would be filled with herbicide or pesticides and would spray the fields to keep those things at bay. And so my Uncle Norris would mix the poisons while the crop duster was spraying, and then when he'd come back and land, he would refill the plane again until it could go out and spray. After two years of exposure to poison with no such thing as OSHA, 
My uncle Norris died at 16 years old, killed by the herbicides he was working with. Though I didn't fully recognize it at the time, those annual visits to the cemetery were important. They let me know, first of all, where my mom came from. What her life was like in a world that seems centuries away from where my life was. And so we take that visit to the cemetery to pause and to reflect because, friends, it creates within us deep gratitude. We're about to take a trip by a cemetery of sorts. As Christians, we celebrate this communion meal. We're going to ponder, we're going to stop, we're going to reflect on the tragic death of Jesus. And this morning, as you take the bread and you put it in your mouth and it crushes between your teeth, you're going to think about the body of Jesus that was crushed for you. As you take the juice and you look at this liquid, You're going to pause and you're going to reflect on the wounded body of Jesus hanging from a Roman cross with blood spilling from every wound and specifically those three holes in his hands and his feet. And we're going to remember and we're going to reflect because in so doing, we're thankful. We're thankful. As you turn the page from the roll call of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the focus shifts from these believers who were faithful to chapter 12, Jesus. Notice how Hebrews 12, 1 puts it. Therefore, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured, who hupomena, who was steadfast from sinners such hostility against himself, that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, just as Paul prayed for these beleaguered believers in Thessalonica, that God would direct their hearts to consider, to ponder the endurance of Jesus Christ, so too the author of Hebrews directs our attention in that way. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. We depend upon Christ's work alone, alone, press us forward into the future. Why? Because that work of Jesus that we're going to reflect upon here in just a moment fosters in us divine confidence. Divine confidence. And that leads to my last thought. When we grow in our dependence upon Christ's work to us and through us, our development in prayer and ministry will correspond. Now, before you close your Bible and close your mind, as we prepare for this communion meal, I would commend to you the words of Hebrews that we lay aside every weight 
and sin which so easily entangles us. In this time of singing, you don't have to stand. If you want to sit and you want to pray, if you want to come to these steps and seek the Lord, I encourage you to lay aside every sin and every weight that so easily entangles us as we prepare to reflect on the communion meal that we're going to celebrate.